you know those kind of people, right? Like, you're just around them, and you're like, man, I love Jesus too. Like, it's infectious. Like, you know, just passion, joy. And out of that infectious love for Jesus, uh, a desire uh, to see other people come into contact with that love of Jesus. And um, he was young, but he was, in, uh, he was passionate, and he uh, was coming to, to faith and uh, really maturing in that faith through ministry with Campus Crusade. He met uh, a sweet girl named Sarah who revolutionized inviting people to church as 250 people were invited through Facebook in 2008 to Catalyst. Remember those days when Facebook was just hitting the scene, right? She shocked me because I said, I invited like 30 people, and she's like, I invited 275. And I was like, how'd you do that, Facebook? It's like, okay. So uh, these two, Sarah and Sasha, became so much a part of our lives and uh, just served well. They both have a passion for discipleship. That is, they want to see people grow in Christ, and yet at the same time, they're constantly sharing the gospel with unbelievers. And people come to faith. We still get their newsletters. So, so 2010, 2011, you went from Missio Church. He was with us and then went to Rochester to be a part of the Campus Crusade team in Rochester and has been serving there ever since. And every month it seems like somebody's getting saved or baptized, uh, uh, Muslims and Hindus and just cross-cultural and just agnostics are coming to faith in Jesus because someone like Sasha sits down and explains the gospel. And uh, it's just been neat to watch you grow. And uh, Sasha's come and preached here, I believe it was last year. Uh, and so we've heard him before. Our church continues to support him financially and will continue to do so as we see just his heart for Christ and his faithfulness in gospel ministry in three weeks, he is transitioning from Rochester to Brooklyn. Yep, Brooklyn. It's a beautiful home in Rochester, but he was not content. He had to move to Brooklyn. And so he's heading down there. God's put it on his heart, and they're establishing a new team there. And I'm probably sure he'll share more stories. But this is a faithful brother. He's a sinner. I've explained, I've built you up enough, but he is indeed a sinner. Uh, but he is uh, nonetheless a saint. And so let's welcome Sasha Halleck uh, as he brings the word today, a treat. And yeah, I know, overkill. They know that about me. But uh, let's pray for him, can we? Father, we come to you in the name of Jesus. We pray that you would just anoint this brother. Uh, he has got so much going on in his life, his family transitioning. He moved yesterday, and he's closing on his house tomorrow. And somehow... Uh, he felt it necessary to, to show up here and to give the word in the midst of madness in his personal life. And I pray that you would calm him, that you would give him joy and strength for this task. And may he just faithfully preach the word, not think he's performing. He's not performing. None of us here are performing for anyone. We're serving one another. I pray that he would have that peace. He's just preaching, declaring truth. He's not creating any message. He's just delivering it one that comes from you. And so, Lord, bless him in this and give him joy. And may we be attentive to his words and ready to receive it and repent of sin and turn to faith in Christ. We ask this in his name. Amen. Let's welcome Sasha. 
Thank you. Well, Mike, that was a gracious introduction. Thank you for building me up, and um, hopefully my message will bring myself down a little bit for you guys um, as I expose my broken heart and uh, all the ways that I chase after other things than Jesus. But I love Mike. I love Doreen. Their family has had a huge influence in our family's life. Mike married my wife and I. It'll be seven years uh, next week. Um, Yep, at Krause College uh, on Syracuse University's campus. It was like 90 degrees in August, no air conditioning. Um, <laughs> full suits, you know the deal. Um, so I love the Maisies, and I love what God is doing in Syracuse um, through First Catalyst, then Missio, and now this church. And I just count it a privilege to be here. Um, you know, my day job involves a little bit of communicating, but I always, I just feel like it's a privilege um, to get to spend this much time with the Bible to the point where I could communicate something to you. Um, and so I don't take that lightly. And yeah, you know, life has been crazy a little bit, um, packing boxes, lots of clear moving tape, trying to do that with two kids under the age of three. Um, I don't know. Somehow we, we made it. Um, a lot of help, um, <laughs> a lot of sweating, um, no central air in our home. Um, but I'm so thankful for the way that, that God has provided for us. Um, We found an apartment last weekend in Brooklyn, so we're selling our house to rent a two-bedroom apartment, Um, but we're glad (laughs) to even find a place. The market is so different than than what I'm used to in Rochester. Um, I don't think the total sale price of our home could even approach um, a down payment to buy an apartment in Brooklyn, Um, so we're going to be content renting. Uh, and we're just, we're, we're going not just to be in the location, but for the 100,000 plus college students who are in Brooklyn, the 10 plus colleges that we have no ministry on. Um, New York's a hard place, the state in general, whether you're in upstate, western New York, or New York City. Um, uh, the average person, if you talk to 10 people, uh, probably 9 out of 10 um, are not in a church on Sunday morning and are not saying that they're all about Jesus. And I get that. That was my life growing up. I had no religious background, uh, was not brought up going to church, and so my life was changed. Uh, Age 19, uh, just a few miles from here in Auburn, New York, when I was at community college. And a friend uh, said, hey, I want to help you know Jesus. And it wasn't as direct as that, but through that friendship, my life changed. And so I get it. Uh, And that's why we've devoted our life to helping college students uh, hear the gospel and follow God. Well, as I've gotten older, um, and so Sarah and I, we both celebrated our 30th 30th birthdays in June. We were born 18 days apart, uh, both of us in Krause Hospital. Um, We we never met until college, um, but it's kind of cool. Yeah, we like to say that. So I was born first. Um, June 4th, and uh, we both celebrated our 30th birthdays this year, and the older I get, I know it might sound weird, 30's not that old, but I just think more and more about the end. Like, I just find myself, as I'm driving, thinking about death and realizing just how short life is, just how finite these days are, right? And maybe part of that is because the older I get, the more I see people that I love pass away, some from old age who have lived nice, great lives, and some unexpectedly, some tragically. And I think being confronted with that, I just recognize, man, I don't know when my day is going to be. I don't know how long I have. I mean, I have this ideal picture of growing old and seeing my children have grandchildren, but none of us really know. And 
it's this weird thing that we live in. We live in this tension of we, we know that could happen, but we're planning for the hopeful reality that it won't. And so I find myself thinking about death more. And it, maybe it's because I have two kids, right? And the responsibility and um, just thinking about how quickly life goes by. I've always heard that, right? Like as you get older, time just seems to go by quicker. Maybe it's the responsibilities. I'm not sure, but um, I just realize, like, man, life is short. And part of that is I think about what will my last words be? Like, what will that last sentence be? Sometimes if Sarah and I have had a conflict, I feel really awful if I leave the house and, like, we're on bad terms. And sometimes she'll even say it. She'll be like, man, I really hope you don't get in a car accident. (laughs) That really, I'm like, ah, yeah, we probably shouldn't leave right now. But you just never know. Like, you just don't know. (laughs) Um. So, and I think we're fascinated as a culture, right, about death, because all of us know that, that we need to go there. We've seen people that we love. It's filled with pain, but it's also a curiosity because it's the destination that each of us has to cross, and we're fascinated with this idea of death and what comes after that, and specifically last words. So I wanted to share some uh, famous last words with you. Uh, the first one, Steve Jobs. These were his famous last words, or at least what was reported by his sister, uh, before he passed. Oh, wow, oh, wow, oh, wow. It's Steve Jobs. Uh, next one. Leonardo da Vinci, as an artist, I wanted to include him. I thought he had a humble, humble last words. I have offended God and mankind because my work did not reach the quality it should have. Um, okay, I get that. I'm an artist. He was pretty good, but, you know. Um, all right, next one. Edgar Allan Poe, Lord, help my poor soul. I like that. Um, I included this next one, not because I, I really knew who this man was before I used Google. Um, I'll go back. I don't know if you have the other ones. No. It's okay. Um, I'll tell you about it. Uh, James Polk. I don't know if that name rings a bell. Um, it didn't for me before I Googled, but he was uh, the 11th president of the United States, it turns out. And his wife also was named Sarah. And so his last words were, Sarah, I'll love you for all eternity. Um, So some famous last words of some interesting people. Um, Death, eternity, um, ideas that all of us think about, the big questions in life. And when Mike asked me um, to come and and this series, Favorite Texts, I can't say that a specific text came to mind immediately, but a concept did. And it's, and it's something that since I decided to follow Jesus at age 19 has stayed with me and has continued to fascinate me and encourage me and motivate me. And it's this idea of eternity. This idea of eternity. And it's a crazy idea. Like, let's just be honest, right? Like, the idea that we will live forever somewhere is pretty radical, and let's not take it for granted. I think sometimes, uh, you know, in Christian culture, this idea of eternity can sort of just become the norm. But we live in the Northeast. You live in Syracuse. And the reality is, a lot of people just think this is foolishness. Like the fact that the human soul would go on after death, that death is not the end and there is something after that, right? A lot of people in our culture don't think that's reality. And I get that. I mean, I, like I said, I, I didn't grow up with any sort of religious foundation, and so for a long time, I didn't know if that was true. 
Estimates and polls say that about 80% of Americans believe in heaven. A few less than that believe in hell. But other polls show that millennials, and especially people 30 and under, um, who would categorize themselves in terms of religious affiliation as none, meaning they have no religious affiliation, those numbers are more around like 40% would believe in some kind of afterlife. And so, you know, we don't know what, what the years will hold to come, but if we were to project that out, Soon, culture could look a little bit different when it comes to this question of eternity, when it comes to this question of an afterlife. And the reason it gets me so excited is because for so long I didn't know what, what the deal was. And at the core of eternity, from a biblical perspective, is this, this crazy claim that God has always existed. He wasn't created He is the creator, but he has no beginning, he has no end. He is eternal. And so when we think about this idea of eternity, God is the one who makes that a reality because he in himself is eternal. We're made in his image. We reflect different characteristics found in him, and so we have an eternal part of us, our souls. But it's hard to really understand because if you look around our world, nothing speaks to that. Like everything is falling apart. Think about your house. Think about your cars. Think about your bodies. Like everything around us is finite and crumbling. I love New York City, but every time I visit, I'm, I'm amazed by the infrastructure and the magnitude, but I'm also so aware of how everything is sort of decaying and crumbling. Sidewalks that have been hit by a hundred delivery trucks. Bridges that you can see rust on the trusses. Tunnels where tiles are falling off. We see it all around us. Things are crumbling and falling apart. And yet the Bible describes God as eternal, one who never changes. And it makes the audacious claim that we are going to live forever with him by faith in Jesus. That we will spend eternity somewhere. That's an amazing claim. Two different quotes for you. The first is from uh, an atheist. I don't know if you got this one. I don't know if I'll be able to read this. Um, So this is from an atheist perspective. The simple fact is that all life forms end in death, and the elements of which they are composed return to the air and the earth to be taken up and recycled in some new organism. The natural process is universal and is beyond dispute. What is challenged by atheists and free thinkers is the claim made by purveyors of religion that humans alone of all living forms have a soul or spirit which survives death and carries the essential characteristics of the person to a supernatural existence in a supernatural realm. Next slide. Atheists maintain that the concept of humankind having a unique supernatural soul is simply a primitive notion which has no basis in fact and that religious organizations are guilty of perpetrating a colossal fraud on ignorant and gullible people, chiefly through the indoctrination of infants They are aided and abetted by the media who fear adverse reactions affecting prophets if the facts are revealed. That's a perspective perhaps you're familiar with as you interact with neighbors and co-workers. Perhaps that's your perspective here this morning, that um, you're sort of new to Christianity, you're just exploring, and and, and this is kind of how you think about it. Like, that's crazy. There is no afterlife. We're just sort of combination of elements and we return to that after we die. Another perspective though from C.S. Lewis, Christianity asserts that every individual human being is going to live forever and this must either be true or false. 
Now, there are a good many things which would not be worth bothering about if I were going to live uh, nearly 70 years, but which I had better, better bother about very seriously if I'm going to live forever. Two very different ideas about eternity. Both of them cannot be true. And for the last 11 years, I've just gone all in with what the Bible says is true about eternity. And it's made sense to me. I mean, even before I became a Christian, as I looked at the natural world, and as I experienced losing people unexpectedly, both the shock of death and how it just felt so unnatural, plus the amazing complexity of nature, I always felt like, man, there's got to be something more. Like the naturalistic worldview just didn't really attract me. Um, Some people think it's freeing that, hey, you know what? There's nothing after death and this is all we got. But there was a part of me that always felt like, man, I just don't know if that's true. And so this morning, I want to look at a parable from the Bible that talks about eternity. Jesus telling us what is true about eternity. And as a result, what is true about ourselves. And so if you have a Bible, you can turn to Luke chapter 16. We're going to be in verses 19 through 31. Luke chapter 16, verses 19 through 31. Uh, To give a little bit of context, Jesus has been doing a ton of teaching. He's been teaching on a bunch of different subjects. But one of the main ones that keeps coming up in this segment of teaching is the way people use and abuse money. The way that people love money and seek money and status and privilege above all else. And, through, and, and, and sort of this is one of the, the, the parables in this section of teaching about wealth and about value. Uh, in the beginning of chapter 16, he says this in verse 14, the Pharisees who were the religious leaders who were listening to Jesus' teaching who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. And he said to them, You are those who justify yourself before men, but God knows your hearts, for what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. They were lovers of money. They sought to justify themselves. Jesus talks a lot about money in the Bible, and he talks a lot about eternity as well. And so, just to give you a little bit of context for this parable, um, If you're unfamiliar with this idea of parables, a simple definition is this. A short allegorical story designed to illustrate or teach some truth, religious principle, or moral lesson. Um, So with that, let's dive in in verse 19. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus covered with sores who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father, Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner received bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between you, us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. And he said, 
Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Fascinating story. Interesting parable. Kind of challenging on the surface to get your mind around. And as I've studied this passage, I kind of see it as as a story of contrasts. Two very different lives. The first character is this rich man. That's the only way he's described, a rich man. Clothed in purple and fine linen. He was externally displaying his wealth for all to see, his status, his privilege. Purple was an extremely rare um, clothing. It was extremely rare because of the dye that was used to make it was really hard to find in the ancient world. And so the fact that he was wearing purple, you know, kings and royalty would wear it. So he was externally just showing the world, I'm rich, I have status, I have power. He not only ate meals, it said he feasted sumptuously. Like just, like imagine like five course meals, like imported wines and cheeses, thousand dollar tabs, like he was living luxuriously and he was doing it all in a way that was about him, his identity, his status, his privilege, self-centered, without thought for others. A parable of contrasts. Lazarus, on the other end of the spectrum, destitute, disabled, uh, lying at his gate, begging, just hoping for some leftovers, hoping for a few scraps from the table, helpless, no income, possibly homeless, marginalized, cast aside, no privilege, no status, no power, two very different lives with two very different eternal destinations. Both of them die, right? Isn't death the great equalizer? No matter what you've had in this earth, whether good or bad, we all end up at that same spot. Death, the great equalizer. And the rich man dies and is buried, a further um, clue to us of his wealth, that he was able to, to afford a burial, a tomb, And he finds himself in a very surprising place, one that I think he probably didn't anticipate. Um, In Hades, this Greek term for the underworld, a place of torment, anguish. Lazarus, on the other hand, dies and is carried by angels to Abraham's side. Abraham being the father of the Jewish people. Think back to the book of Genesis, the first book of the Bible. Um, A man of faith, one who was promised that through you will come... um, a nation. Uh, Through him, the 12 tribes, the whole nation of Israel, the whole history into which Jesus comes. And so Abraham is revered in Jewish culture. And Lazarus finds himself there, comforted. Two very different lives, two very different eternal destinations. And I think it's important, like just right, right in the beginning, to state what this parable isn't. This parable is not a condemnation of wealth. This parable is not saying that it's preferable to be poor, um, that that is in some way more righteous than having wealth or status. This parable isn't elevating that. 
and it's not uh, minimizing or saying that, that the, you know, the fact that the rich man had wealth was the issue. That's not the problem. This isn't so much a commentary on possessions as it is a commentary on the heart. So this parable isn't that. This parable also isn't saying in any way that these two men ended up in their eternal destinations based upon their performance, based upon the merits of their character during this life. Make no mistake about it, Lazarus was just as sinful as the rich man. They were just as broken, just as rebellious in heart. How can I make that inference? Because that's human nature. That's our condition. All of us have gone astray. All of us are like the prodigal son one chapter earlier. All of us have rebelled against our father and said, I don't want anything to do with you. I'm going to take everything that you've given me and squander it. So the passage doesn't tell us this. We don't know the whole backstory, but we can infer based upon what we know about Scripture and we know about human nature that their eternal destination was not earned. It was not granted based upon their position in life, nor their character or their good deeds. This parable exposes the heart. Ultimately, what I think this parable is trying to teach us, what Jesus is trying to teach us, is that the way we use wealth indicates what we believe about God. And what we believe about God has eternal consequences. The way we use our wealth, the way that we steward what has been entrusted to us, because all of it's God, right? He has given us this little portion what we do with that speaks greatly to what we believe about him. How we use that or don't use that, how we share that or hoard that speaks very much to what we believe about God. And what we believe about God has eternal consequences. Two very different lives lived very differently. Jesus is teaching this parable, and yet we know the whole story, that he was going to go to the cross. You think about it in terms of eternity, which gets me so excited. God from eternity steps into human time, in human form, lives a perfect life on our behalf, the life that none of us could live, and he goes to the cross. And on the cross, he gives himself for our, for our sins. What I think I see in this parable is that that's so needed because each of us, if we're honest, and I'm, I include myself here, like each of us is the rich man. Each of us has abused and neglected others. Each of us has used what has been entrusted to us imperfectly, right? Like none of us have kept that standard when it comes to stewarding resources, when it comes to using our wealth appropriately. All of us have indulged for our own comfort. All of us have neglected people that could use those. You know, all of us are in that boat. We're all the rich man. All of us deserve where he ended up. We all deserve that eternal destination. And it's only because of Jesus. It's only because he went to the cross out of his great love for us so that he could be glorified, so that he could have many sons and daughters who would worship him redeemed. That's the only way we have standing before God. That's the only way Lazarus enjoys his eternal destination. And so what that indicates is a, is a heart of faith towards God and one that said, I don't want anything to do with you. 
The gospel is what we each need. This parable exposes our hearts. And maybe it's not wealth for you. Um, Maybe it's your family. Maybe it's career. Maybe it's success. Maybe it's a hundred other good things. But when those good things become ultimate, when those become your identity so much so that you're described by that thing, he was a rich man. That's, That's his name. He was all about that. When those good things become ultimate, or even when those bad things become ultimate, um, that exposes our hearts. We realize, Jesus, I have not treasured you as number one. And that's part of why I really wanted to speak on this passage. As The more I studied it, I realized it has so much connection to my own life. Like, this is me. I do this in so many ways. And this summer has been a process for me of God just revealing like all the ways that I treasure things other than Jesus, all the ways that I form my identity around all these other things, all in this like weird pursuit of happiness or fulfillment or whatever you want to call it. I'm, I'm attaching myself to these things, and none of them fulfill their promises. They're all an illusion. They will destroy us if we don't detach from them and attach to Jesus. That's what I think the heart of this passage does, is it exposes our heart. Where do we find our identity? What do we value most? How we use our wealth indicates, it reveals what we believe about God. And what we believe about God has eternal consequences. Eternity is real. Judgment is a real thing. This passage is also a warning as a result. It's a warning. This is, and, and I think out of love, Jesus talks so much about eternity, so much about the consequences of living apart from him here, out of love to say, look, I'm giving you all the info. Here's the deal, like, if you live apart from me and walk away from me and love so many other things apart from me, there are consequences. This passage is a warning. Judgment is real. I think another thing I've realized about this passage, which excites me, is it's a passage of comfort and it's a passage of hope. And I think it's, I think it's kind of challenging as American Christians who live in extreme affluence, no matter what your income range is, if you had the privilege of being born where you were born, you automatically fall within, you know, 5% of the world in terms of wealth and access to resources, And as a result, I just wonder if we miss some of the comfort and the hope of this parable. And I think about Christians, I think, I don't know why, maybe it's because I've read a little bit about Somalia recently, but I think about a Christian from Somalia whose whole family has been killed through persecution, who finds himself in a refugee camp in Kenya, just struggling to meet basic needs. Food isn't a guarantee and just with no hope of vocation, trapped in this camp, he can't leave with 500,000 other people. I just wonder like what this passage is to that man and how different the hope and the comfort is for him when he reads, Lazarus received bad things in this life, in his life, but now he is comforted. I think sometimes we, we inaccurately associate receiving good things from, from, and, and somehow associate and correlate that with being in right standing with God. That if we walk with God, X plus Y should equal we're blessed and we have a great life and things go great. And I just wonder what a comfort this passage is to Christians who are suffering 
and who say, this life wasn't good to me. A lot of really hard things happened to me. A lot of things that I really wish didn't happen. And I am not at home here. This is not comfortable for me. I'm in anguish. And I just wonder as they read this parable, if it doesn't just bring hope, where they realize, oh, thank you, Jesus. This isn't it. Like, this isn't my home. I've received bad here. But you have such good things to come. And the beauty of eternity, let me just remind you, isn't that we're going to live forever. The beauty of eternity is the one who we will spend eternity with. God is there. He is what our souls need most ultimately. So I think this parable isn't just hope for the future for those who are suffering and going through hard things. It's also deep hope for today because the one who is in eternity is the one who has made himself available to us now. And let me not minimize our lives, right? Even though we're in America and we may be materially um, well off comparatively, suffering, we just can't escape it. And so I know in a room of this size, there's unimaginable suffering, things that you guys have walked through or are currently walking through. I get that. Um, Three years ago, uh, we were so excited to have our first son, just overjoyed to be parents. I never knew my dad growing up, and so this was sort of an opportunity to do things differently. And we couldn't have anticipated what was to come as we found ourselves in the hospital getting a diagnosis of a rare genetic condition with no cure. 20% of kids don't make it to age one. Our little son Judah was so critical. We had to intervene with the feeding tube. Just the darkest days of my life. Intense pain. To this day, every day, we are reminded as we care for him, as he cannot walk and barely crawl, as we have to get his tube feeds ready, as he struggles to communicate, as we're out in public and people refer to him as the guy who can't walk, as we recognize his isolation to a certain degree based upon his disability. Like, we are constantly reminded this world is not our home. This isn't it. Like, we haven't arrived do you know I would give everything? I would give every dollar in my bank account. I would, give, I would be totally destitute if my son could be well, just as a father who wants his son to thrive. But we've learned that our suffering, those hard things that we go through, are reminders. This isn't it. Like, let's not be fooled. This isn't it. And those things that we look to for security and comfort, that's not it. That's not what our hearts and souls need. My son being well, that wouldn't automatically make my life great. No. I need Jesus, the one whom I'm, I'm going to be with for eternity and I have access to now. This parable is, 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 a, is a parable of comfort and hope for those who are suffering. Think about your situation, the hard things you're going through right now. Jesus is available to you right now. He can meet you in a way that other things can't to give you peace that surpasses understanding, to give you hope for a future. The last thing I want to point out, and then I'm going to wrap up, I observe that this parable is also an instruction. The last interaction of the rich man with Abraham, he's going back and forth, right? He realizes, okay, I'm stuck. Uh, and that's also an interesting theological commentary on the finality of our eternal destination. There's a lot of different interpretations out there. Make no mistake about it, I think this parable points to the reality that there is no second chance. 
Hell is final. Heaven is final. There is a, a chasm that has been fixed. We cannot go there. They cannot come here. There's a finality to it. So once the rich man realizes, well, I'm, you know, done. I'm going to be in torment here. Um, I'm not even going to get some water on my tongue. Hey, I've got five brothers, and they're living just like me. Send someone to rise from the dead, and that'll be like a sign, and they'll realize God is real, and they'll repent. Don't miss this last part of the parable. It's important. Abraham responds and says, no, you don't get it. Like, they have Moses and the prophets. That would have meant the whole Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament. They have God's word. They have the Bible. Let them hear that. That's enough. And then the rich man counters and says, no, you don't get it. Like, they don't, they don't care about the Bible. They don't listen to the Bible. They don't love God. They're not going to listen to his words. You've got to do something else. He's trying to come up with his own rescue plan. And don't we do that all the time, both for ourselves and those who we love? No, 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 they don't need the Bible. They don't need the gospel. They need something else. The whole world is doing that. I need exercise. I need a good diet. I just need to get financially secure. I just need a little bigger house. Once I give up this addiction, then things will be okay. We are great at coming up with our own rescue plans. And Abraham points him back and back and says, no, 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 no. If they're not willing to hear and respond to God's word, to what he has said is true, forget it. There's no hope. That's the same word to us today. That's the instruction. This parable is a parable of warning, but it's also one that gives great instruction. Moses and the prophets, the Old Testament, all of them point to who? To Jesus. All of them point to this great rescue plan that God has orchestrated from the foundation of the world before history began. This beautiful rescue plan of love. That's the answer. This is the warning. But there's a way out. God has provided that through Christ. As you think about yourself, I don't know where you're at today, what your spiritual background is. As you think about your neighbors, as you think about your family, this is what they need. You living the word of God and you speaking the word of God. And I know sometimes in our mind we rationalize and we just say, man, they're just not open or they just won't be interested. It doesn't matter. That's what they need. And so if you know that's what they need and if I know that's what they need, why am I so afraid? You see, each of us is like that rich man spiritually right? We have been given so much riches if you're following Jesus. Let us not be like him when we see people around us who are spiritual beggars, who are just helpless, totally destitute. Let us be generous with what God has entrusted to us. Let us share. Invite those people into our home. Don't let them beg at your gates. And I know sometimes you don't see them like that. You don't see your coworkers and your family as spiritual beggars and destitute, but God does. That is the true reality of every human heart. Don't let appearances fool you. Don't let wealth and houses and cars and jobs and promotions fool you. Apart from Christ, there is no life. Um, we have an opportunity to give, not to take, to not be self-centered consumers, but to be givers. And I speak to myself. 
I've worked for eight years to help bring the gospel to people, but can I tell you the truth? I haven't shared the gospel in two months. Um, I've been consumed with moving and this and that, off campus. I've got neighbors. I've got people around me. Um, So this is a message for me too. How we use our wealth indicates what we believe about God. And what we believe about God has eternal consequences. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you, Jesus, that you are here with us, that you don't hold our sins against us, but, Lord, that you died for all of them. Thank you for your grace, for your love. Uh, Totally undeserved. God, each of us deserve to be in the eternal destination of that rich man. All of us have abused, neglected, and misused your resources, our time, our money, our talents. God, give us a heart that recognizes our own failings and turns to you. Help us to respond to your word, the gospel, the good news that Jesus is the answer. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Why don't you stand with us as we respond to that?